Hey, so a couple messages on this podcast before we get started. First off, I swear a little bit through this podcast, so heads up if you have kids in the car. Yes, I start swearing a little bit through this podcast. So heads up, this is Tom Karadza, and he's warning you that he's swearing. Part of the reason is that when we get into this with Joe Gluby here, we start off with a, I won't swear in the intro, we start off with a poop story that happened to me recently that uh, we were talking about before we started recording that ended up making its way into the recording. And I didn't use the word poop. And later, as we get a little bit more serious into some of the heavier stuff, I drop a couple F-bombs. So there you go. There's the warning. So welcome to this episode. It's Tom Karadza, and we are speaking to Joe Gluby, who was gracious enough to come back. And he's sharing his perspective on addiction. And he has quite the life story on his previous time here. He was sharing everything he had been through. But I think on this particular episode, I feel like he goes much deeper into why or when he decided to step outside of addiction. And uh, I thought it was fascinating and I'm really grateful and honored for him to be able to share this stuff. This is what Your Life, Your Terms is all about. It's us all recognizing what we're good at, our strengths, our weaknesses, our flaws, and uh, taking personal responsibility of our lives and being happy and joyful. That's what it's all about. So to get you Joe to share his story in hopes that perhaps someone out there listening might be able to use what he's been through to help themselves or someone else is very powerful to me. And actually Nick talks a little bit of what he went through in uh, some of his adventures in his youth that I don't think he's ever shared before on the podcast. So that was uh, enlightening to me that he took the opportunity to share some of his personal journey. And uh, I really don't think he shared that anywhere before. So uh, Nick shares a bit of his story on what he went through with some car flips and and I'll, I'll leave it at that. He shares it on the podcast. So that's what we're doing on this podcast. Joe Gluby is back. He's a longtime rock star inner circle member, an absolutely fantastic dude. And he is sharing his, his perspective on addiction, feelings, thoughts, self-talk, how it all plays together and when and why he came out of his addiction. And for me, not being exposed to this world a lot, it was very insightful and I would go as far as to say enlightening. So thank you, Joe, for doing that. I'm really appreciative of it. This is great that we're able to share this kind of stuff. And that's it with this intro. Let's get right on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. We are live with Joseph Glooby, who I know as Joe Glooby, but now I know it's Joseph Glooby. Born and raised in Halifax. Um, you just told me the answer. Born in Halifax proper or yeah. no? Born in Halifax, raised in Halifax. I should know this from the last podcast. Yeah. If you have not heard Joe's first time around here, you should go back and listen. If you go to rockstartinnercircle.com forward slash podcast and find this current episode right in the show notes, we will link to his previous episode. And that was a journey. At one point, Joseph, you and I, you and Nick, it takes a lot to get Nick and I to shut up. And you had us both silent with our jaws open. Um, I think it was the school that you went to and some of the stuff yeah, that you yeah, went to. Yeah. And now uh, Joe's back to talk about a whole bunch of stuff. And I don't know where this conversation is going to go, but I'm interested to, to find out because we have a very articulate person on our hands here who can articulate. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, you can talk about a lot of stuff. So welcome back, Joe Thank Gluby. You. And uh, you're going to have to come right closer to the mic so everybody can hear your voice. Okay, I'm already shitting my pants. So. No, you don't shit your pants. <laughs> Is that a good go. way to start? You can delete that. No, keep that in. <laughs> hey, yeah, listen, I just, have just one last question. week I was cleaning shit off, the, off a, a, a Nick's here. I have to share this since you said shit the pants. I didn't know we were going to start on this. I had a a, to- a a bathroom renovation in my house and the toilet wasn't secured properly to the floor. So the last few months, I guess, there's been a, a buildup of shit and uh, <laughs> it actually started leaking a little bit through the floor, Joe. And oh, uh, I, we had to cut the ceiling open and the plumber came to fix the problem. And he said, look, I took the toilet off, but... You know, I'm past the stage where I'll clean what I see underneath this toilet. I don't really do that anymore. But I think you should look at this because, you know, if it was my house, I'd want this cleaned up. And, uh, yeah, there was crap smeared all over the place. And my wife was very grateful I was home in that moment. So, And the plumber just stood arms crossed as I got down there and just started spraying some bathroom cleaner and scrub and I had to scrub. And you know what the color of nice bathroom cleaner looks like once you mix it in with just pure shit? It doesn't look good. And then, uh, and the plumber was, he was just standing back. He's like, I've never really seen anyone just dive into that like that before. And I'm like, listen, you haven't met me and my brother, our family. We're not scared of this stuff. We are not much experienced dealing with this. Don't, don't even talk to us. Oh, Nick's here. Let me turn on his mic. Nick's mic is now on. So anyway, Josie, we started off talking about that. We didn't even know we were going to go there. Speaking of poop, how's the reno? My reno doesn't involve poop. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's reno at some point involves. Yeah. How do, this how one, do I say one, shit? And this you guys one, are yeah. both saying politely poop. Yeah, yeah. yeah we're very polite people. Poop. We don't we don't okay. stick, we don't stick Sorry, to your poop. level. No poop. We'll go with poop. Um, so Joe, what uh, what was the impetus to bring you? What was going through your mind to bring you back? What are we talking about today? Um, I guess the impetus was to. Share a little bit more about my journey to hopefully encourage other people who might be struggling with the same things to realize they're not alone and and maybe to help somebody out there who um, has similar issues or has had similar struggles or maybe is still stuck in some of the stuff that I've kind of come out of um, and uh, just you know, to share that basically there's a, there's a single line and the line is, uh, anybody struggling with addiction can recover. That's, 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 you know, so I see a that's platform. The, that's the belief that like, when you say a, there is a single line who, sorry, where, where does that single line come from? That's oh, uh, people um, with addiction. That's something that you hold on to as a belief. So that's a, that's a interesting question. So Um, so I've spent a lot of time working with other people in, in fellowships and organizations that are designed to help people recover from addiction. And of course, you know, at one time I was the person getting most of the help. And today I'm kind of standing on the sidelines more than anything else, because I'm not really in the, you know, working with a lot of people or anything right now. Um, but at one time I had to get a lot of help to overcome my struggles and in those environments, there's a kind of a, a, a kind of a different language that's used, a language of, of recovery, a language of helping people, a language of love. And, and, and there's these lines like, we can recover, we do recover, we, you know, there is a way through this. And, and so we were talking about a little bit before Nick walked in the room when we were off air, much like uh, Dr. Jeff, who you were saying, shared that, you know, he, he kind of views this as a, 
this this podcast is more than a business growth um you know business information kind of environment it's it's really the way you guys carry yourselves and the way you guys deliver a message it's it's really a message of of getting healthier in every way and um uh and so you know that's really influenced me over the years your your kind of message has really influenced my thinking on on healthy thinking (laughs) and um so I, I kind of viewed it as when I realized what I was saying in the first podcast, I kind of realized, wait a minute, I'm talking about all this stuff, but I'm talking about it in the context of, you know, I did all those things and I kind of came through it and now here's what I'm doing now. But I didn't really explain in my mind, I didn't really explain, <clears throat> sorry, why I was doing it, what I did to stop and change and what happened to me kind of that, that and the experiences I went through to change and then kind of how I look at that today. Instead, it was more just... It's the, you know, I can, I've got so many stories. Like I think I, I, I know I talked about the car, car thief to car salesman story in the meeting, in the last one, but I've probably got 20 or 30 stories like that that are just so outlandish, right? We're never like going to forget crazy. the stories of that school that you were in. Yeah, where, that's right. Where they yeah. made people yeah. dress the up treat, in a certain, oh my, yeah, the yeah, treatment yeah, yeah. center. So, yeah. okay, so let's. That's not what they called it. They called it a school for out of control adolescents is what they called it. No way. It's a, it's Literally out of school for out of control. I have a pin. I, I found a pin. I'm unpacking stuff and I found a pin and the pin was from the school and it was the name of the school and it said. I'm out um, of control. No, it said, <laughs> it said not crazy. Uh, what does it say? It says, it says, we're not crazy. We're just out of control. <laughs> Or something like that. Wow. Just say, you can't. I mean, even the, using the word crazy nowadays is like that's, that's even right. a taboo yeah. thing. So yeah. I mean, before yeah. you were just like, <laughs> at least they were saying you were not crazy. <laughs> it was out of control. Imagine they called school for the, the crazy kids. Yeah. Right? Well, and people did crazy shit in that school. But I'll, I'll so t- yeah. So let's break that like because you broke it out really nicely. Like why you were doing what you did, and maybe you can give a little bit of recap, and then why you changed or how you changed. Let's go through that then. Yeah. So there's a again, there's these expressions in in kind of recovery that that. I try to follow and try to remember. And when you're speaking uh, to other people about kind of your journey, you talk a little bit about uh, what it was like, what happened and kind of what changed and what it's like today. And so my problem is, is, and again, we were joking around about this before, is this idea of being an authority on things and we know the answers and, you know, a lot of information comes across. And so you want to, you want to, you know, so I'm not Dr. Jeff. He's an authority on why I'm such a basket case, okay? So I should probably talk to him and learn more. Um, How do you feel about I, using that that particular language when you describe yourself? That always bothers me. Yeah, I me know. A I watch you. I, the same thing happened that, the last that time. That bothers we me because you when you it doesn't point bother to, me. It's just, <laughs> no, when you point to yourself and you say, "This is why I'm such a basket case." I know there's like some joking around, like Nick and I will it's do a that. Self-effacing thing a little bit where I'm, where, you know, I'm not totally serious about it, and I, but I get it. I know that. I don't know why that just when I hear people say that to themselves, it just. Yeah, it doesn't sit with me quite right. <clears throat> Again, I was sharing with you right before the session that I was kind of almost talking somebody off the ledge here just in the last 30, 40 minutes and an emotional ledge and a pretty serious one. And they're spinning out of control and they're really upset and they're and they didn't sleep last night and a lot of different things going on in their minds. And one of the things that I was saying to them is you have to take a step back and kind of look at what you've done well and be objective about what you've done well and what you've done poorly and recognize that, you know, the information he had shared with me was that he had done really, really, really well. He had done really, really well. And yet some little part of him was telling him it wasn't good enough and he wasn't, 
you know, where he should be and he hadn't achieved what he should have done and he was letting people down and all this language. inside. So I get what you're saying about, you know, calling myself a and basket I know case. You, I can tell but trust you're... me, Tom, I'm a basket case. Like you <laughs> okay. would not want to spend a day inside my head because you just would not, uh, you'd probably come out so traumatized that you'd lose the rest of your hair. Well, I have no <laughs> practice in this. I feel like I still have some hair left. This is, whoa, I didn't know that. This is a positive. See, I hear, I just, anything, anything I hear about myself, I just interpret as a positive joke. That's how I get yeah, through yeah, life. Yeah. Um, I, I but, heard from, from that that we were talking about with, when you mentioned Dr. Jeff, I, you know, because he's the professional, you're not, right? Yeah. And and I get that. And and there is validity to that to a point. But sometimes I think like too much is, it's not all about book smarts. And when you've lived it and you have the, per, the, 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 well, the personal experience about something, once you're self-aware enough, which, it, you know, it seems like at this point in your life, you've just, you've learned a lot of lessons and you're able to kind of understand those lessons, you're qualified in your own way. You know, they're, they're, to me, the, the book smarts and street smarts, they play a different, they each play a different role. And one, sometimes the book smarts isn't so good. You kind of need to live it and go through it because then you know how to handle it in a real life situation, right? Yeah, I can tell you that uh, I'm privileged to know a lot of people uh, who, who have come into um, programs of recovery and 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 changed their lives and gotten clean, gotten off the dope, gotten off the alcohol, and and live a, a, a very clean, healthy life today. Who are extremely intelligent and extremely informed, and they take a lot of time to understand not only what's happening for them but for the people around them, and then they become these wonderful beacons of hope for other people around them who are struggling with the same things. I'm not really a beacon of hope. I'm kind of the guy, I'm like him. I'm like the guy like, sit down over there, shut up and do what you're told. No, in your friend circle, <laughs> I don't even know your friends, but uh, I'm yeah, sure in no, your circle no, of friends, you're a beacon of hope. No, there's no, no, there's so. nothing wrong with my approach, all right? Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, so so there is, there's a lot of merit in what Nick said that, that there's this mix of, uh, of, uh, you know, personal experience. I mean, it's really what you guys are doing too, with your own, your own paths in life. You've got all this tremendous personal experience. You're constantly sharing it. You're constantly delivering it. In, constantly in, screwing up. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, you don't have a message unless you're screwing up. Like yeah. if, if I thought I was really doing well, I'd probably be running away from this thing, but I think there's something for me to learn in this too. Uh, in sharing some of this stuff that I'm going to get into. And, and so that's, you know, so yeah, so it's not going to be like a psychologist's version of why, you know, I became an extreme drug addict in my teens. And uh, so why, know, why did you? Well, I don't think there's any one really easy answer, but I think the, the what it was like part boils down to feelings and it boils down to a combination of feelings and experiences. So, you know, the psychologist would be like, is it nature or nurture? As a matter of fact, didn't Dr. Jeff even say that in the last podcast, nature or nurture? So who the fuck knows? Like, I don't know, right? What I know is that I always feel different. To this day, I still feel very different sometimes when I'm in a room full of people. I've, I, at, at, at one time in my life, I felt like an outsider. I felt um, like I could never just be part of the group. I was either the leader of the group or the enemy of the group. I was never just part of the group. I was never just, you know, part. I was always... You know, if I wasn't the boss of it all, then I'd be like leading the gang that was breaking apart. And the classic would be, you know, grade four, you know, you build the 
big giant snow fort in the back of the school and then the other group comes along and they're like oh we don't like that fort we want to build another one and then you like go attack their fort and beat the crap out of you know the fort and break all the snow up and they don't have I feel a fort I feel like we have to have Dr. Jeff on with <laughs> yeah, us while right. you describe Consulting things so we can say, we, so you could say something and we could and turn to Dr. Say, Jeff and say, say what do you think about what interpret. you do? but you said something interesting <laughs> why is Joe I, being an asshole yeah. <laughs> no but you said something interesting I think we all feel like outsiders at different times I know sure. I do absolutely so I guess is, then is it the way you handle that yeah, feeling absolutely so if we all have that to some extent or it's just different environments yeah, it's how we react to it so so this is what i was saying about i was talking with tom nick before you came in about the idea that there's the feeling that's fleeting that just arrives inside you and you're like where's that guy you know how did that happen like why am i thinking that and then there is the kind of considered um, objective you roll it over in your mind and you're thinking about how do I feel about that and why do I why do I think that way and you're really considering it and those are kind of very different feelings and and I think that for me I spent an enormous amount of time reacting reacting to my feelings and acting on my feelings ill-considered rarely considered not considered at all I can point to examples in my life currently that are still the same kind of path so I think when I was younger, um, well, let's take that school for an example. So I get into the school and what they do in this place, and I don't, I don't think it still exists, but maybe it does. I don't There's know. no way that can still exist. <clears throat> I'd have to look into it. Yeah. But um, uh, what they did, what they do is they they strip you and they body search you, and then they put you in shorts, t-shirt, and socks with running shoes that have no laces and no belt and nothing really that you could, you know, hang yourself with or run away with. Like, no, you don't have anything. Like, you don't even, it's middle of winter and you're wearing, like, T-shirt and shorts all the time. And if, and they see how you behave. And you go through your chores. You have chores to do all day. And depending on how you behave is how they treat you. So my behavior was no matter who told me what to do, I pretty much had resistance for them. <laughs> I was very resistant. You can't teach me. You can't tell me anything. And so eventually they started treating me as if I was resisting all the time. And so I was, and they have language for it again in this environment. And it was like, how do you, you're, you're reacting to the people that are giving you instructions. So they would, you know, yell, the, the solution was to, they had this very formalized yelling process that they did where they would, they would yell at you. They called it a haircut, which I think comes from the, from the Marines. Um, they'd call it a haircut and you'd get a dressing down and, and they would always say you're reacting to the senior people. And I always think reacting to coordinators because that was like the top title in the place. And these are just other students, but they've kind of gone through the program and they're more mature and so on. And so, so I was walking around with a, it ended up being like a, like an eight foot wide, four foot tall Bristol board sign that they had to have like an X shaped piece of wood on the back to hold it all together. Cause otherwise all this Bristol board would just fold up around me. And all it said on it was ask me why I react to coordinators. That's all it said. So I had to carry that around with me all day long, every day. So what was the end? The, what was the, the end of that? Why did you react to coordinators? This is, so this is because I thought I knew better because I didn't want other people to tell me I wasn't good enough because I didn't want other people to judge me because I thought that I, I, you know, if everybody just left me alone, I would be okay. I'd be fine. And the truth was, is that you don't end up in a place like that because you're fine, right? Like I was, I was stealing, I was lying, I was doing drugs. I was, you know, 12, 13 years old and I was skipping school and we had to go to religious school, my family, outside of regular school. And I'd literally get dropped off in the front door, go out the back door, go hang out in the but park wait, so for the you're, day. So you're associating you dealing drugs with your thinking that 
you are challenge authority and that yeah. just led you to deal drugs? No, we're ahead of ourselves. Yeah, like where so, do those dots get connected? I so don't the, get it. So the, because I find a lot of my own self in what you're saying. I think a big part of myself is questioning authority. Yeah, for like, sure. I, 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 and then we go get the AstraZeneca yeah, yeah, uh, yeah vaccine, yeah. right? Like yeah. it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. Joe tied people <laughs> who question authority to getting the AstraZeneca vaccine. But I want to stay on, on where we're at. Let's stay on where the point we're at there is that you question authority, you're dealing drugs. I don't understand. So, so who's the first authority that I had in my life is my parents, right? So the authority figures in my life are my parents, except my interpretation of what happened, my childhood interpretation, of what my childish interpretation of what happened was that they rejected me. So in, in my mind as a child, my parents foisted me off on older siblings and were never really around. Now, I think if they were here today, they're both passed away, but if they were here today, they'd be like, yeah, that's partly true, but you know, it's also not true. We did this, 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 and this. But at the time, my, my lack of objective perspective on what had happened in my life, I was acting on those feelings of feeling rejected. I was feeling unworthy. I was feeling unlovable, undeserving. And then I had, a, I had a teenage brother, so I'm like six years old, and he's like 14, 15. And he's so telling you you are. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, at that, at so that he's reinforcing it in this extreme that point, you're not way. Question, right? You're not questioning authority here. You're, so you're, you're, this is so coming from a feeling of not being loved. That's right. Not being loved, not being deserving, not being worthy. But the authority in my household happened to be the head of the court system for the province. So there's kind of a resistance point there where... You know, my mother was a judge. She became a chief justice. And so listening to her authority position, you know, I wanted to be opposed to it. And I don't think it was super conscious that I was being opposed to it. But I was doing what a lot of kids do and rebelling against the things that they, you know, that their parents seem to espouse. Right. And so the, the problem is, is that I think that the vast majority is a lack of common sense, guys, is really what it is. So what happens is, is somewhere along the line, I didn't get the common sense that the vast majority of children get. So it's, it's not the, you know, let Joe try it first line, which, you know, is kind of almost a lack of intelligence. You know, let, oh, it's a big cliff. We'll let Joe jump into the water first and see how that goes, right? It wasn't that. I wouldn't be the first guy jumping in. I'd be the guy encouraging him to jump in. And everybody else would be like, no, I'm not sure if he should do it. And I'd be like, no common sense. I'd be like, jump, jump, jump. See if it works, right? And so, so you know, and if he gets a broken arm or worse, you know, it's like, well, you know, I wasn't the stupid one who jumped. But that's a real lack of common sense, right? And, and the problem is, is that somewhere in your youth, you start to pick it up. You start to, you start to recognize that the authority figures in your life, the adults in your life, the other people in your life, they're not complete idiots. And I really may have spent most of my life thinking most people are idiots. Maybe. I still think that sometimes. Today. I was going to say, I don't think we totally <laughs> shook that idea. Let's not kid ourselves yeah, so here. That idea is still in so there. The, so, the, so the problem is, is if I don't have a lot of respect for what other people say, do, stand for, and I feel, you know, unlovable, unworthy, undeserving, I'm going to, you know, there's kind of two things. One of the things is that I, I was desperate to escape from those negative feelings. So I think that's key to the addiction part is that you become desirous of an escape and so then you're whatever age you know I was very young I was probably uh, eight nine years old I stole a pack of cigarettes and got completely wasted on this pack of cigarettes like you're not supposed to get wasted on cigarettes but when you're nine years old and you smoke cigarettes you get wasted in a bad way like pukey wasted. yeah body buzz way yeah it was like messed up but it was different and it was unacceptable to my parents and it was kind of cool to my peers you know they're like oh that's cool so there was this driving force that said that 
you know, this makes me special. This makes me worthwhile. This makes me interesting. You're getting a sense this of belonging me, now. From, that's right. From being exactly going into the cigarettes, people think you're cool, and, and now you belong to a I'm, group. And I'm also not feeling the same feelings that of unworthy and unlovable. Those feelings are and, hidden. And there's a contradictory thing there because as you break rules and you get in trouble for breaking the rules, you're reinforcing the fact that you're not good enough and you're not worthy and you're not right. So there's this kind of weird contradiction in there. And, 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 and for me, um, looking back on, on the reasoning at the time, I can tell you that for me, um, I, I didn't see that. Whereas most of the people around me, the kids around me, they could see that it doesn't make sense. If you're unhappy, you should talk to somebody. You should, you know, this was the 70s and the 80s. And yet people were like, you know, you should rely on your friends and you should hang out with your friends more. And you should do, you should get involved in sports and you should, you know, you know, do better, you know, spend more time at school and try your best to achieve so things why in school. So uh, Because I, I was unteachable. <laughs> I think to a great degree, I still am. And, um, uh, and so I wasn't willing to listen to people in positions of authority tell me that this might work out for me. And I never ran into a real mentor. The only mentor I had was that 14-year-old brother when I was six. And, you know, from age you know, six to 10, he's 14 to 18. And he's a basket case for his own teenage reasons. And he's turned out to be a relatively healthy, positive individual in his adult life. Uh, but he, but he certainly unintentionally, I think, to some degree, did a number on me and maybe some, you know, maybe somewhat intentionally because he was resentful. I was the new youngest, he was the youngest. And then all of a sudden, there was another one. Okay, so and Joe, I have a couple things for you. Yeah, so okay. for, the first thing is that it seems like in life, it's very critical to feel loved and a sense of belonging. I can I can feel Nick and I, our parents, our father specifically wasn't around much. We had like Sunday lunches with him. He was, you know, construction, working, working construction. And then he was like out gambling with his friends on the weekends. Not, not a serious gambling uh, issue, but like regularly playing cards and stuff like that and wasn't, wasn't around. But we always felt like he loved us. And our mom, we definitely felt that she loved us. So I, I feel like Nick and I maybe dodged that one a little bit because we did definitely somehow feel like, wow, we are loved. I think by- it's why we both probably like during those adolescence years, I, I've, we both kind of, I, I don't know, maybe more so me than you, but like I just really didn't, when I went through high school and people were mean to me, like, like that's just being a kid, right? Like, like normal yeah. stuff. I just never cared. I was like, yeah, they're wrong. I know I'm good and well, screw them. The and I, I was fortunate that way and I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I think that had a lot to do with it actually. Yeah, and, and so I want to get your thoughts on this. So then going forward as we got a bit older and I got into sales, I really noticed in sales, this is where I really had an awareness about this. I'm like, wow, I do have a little bit of a need for approval of mm-hmm. others because if I'm not doing well here in sales and my peers are, I'm feeling pretty little low here, but somehow through a combination of, I think a reading like a dozen books or two dozen sales books, I realized, Oh, it's okay to fail and it's okay to ask for money and it's okay to get a lot of money and you're good in that environment. And if you don't get the sale, that's not a reflection on you as a person you just kind of keep going. And I almost think that for me, because Nick, I think you were better at this younger, that my sales journey really helped me get comfortable with myself. 
somehow. Yeah. Like, like I was like, okay, you I know, you know, I don't need to, have an, I don't need to win the sales award. I'm just going to go crush it. <laughs> and that's going to be proof to myself that I'm like worthy in this thing. And that really in a weird way helped me. So I'm curious to go back to your story now. I just want to share this. I had a friend who shared something that was almost, you know, like miraculous to me in the sense that <clears throat> I don't know what other people in the room thought about it when he said it, but he said that you never really have any realizations about your life unless you're looking retrospectively. You know, you, it's not like you're going through something and you can really see that it's happening, right? And then you look back and you're like, oh, I achieved that. Oh, I, you know, I, I fell flat on my face in that. Oh, I, you know, I hurt that person. I need to go correct that. Oh, I didn't hurt that person. I can take some solace that I handled that well. And, and for me, um, the, the, the evidence that piled up as a youth starting with, you know, this, this kind of combined message of me perceiving my parents weren't around, therefore they didn't love me, and it being reinforced by somebody telling me, yeah, they don't love you, that's why I'm stuck with you all the time. Uh, that combination of those two reinforcements, I then carried and saw more evidence of that as I got a little bit older. So I get into school and, you know, I'm this, you know, I'm this duality. I'm this likable kid, you know, good-looking kid, well-spoken, you know, I was reading at a young age. I was always good in school. I never had any issues. I could pick up anything. It didn't matter what the subject was. I was okay with it. Um, but on the other side of the coin, I was always resisting and I wouldn't cooperate and I wouldn't, and I wasn't, you know, I don't, doesn't play well with others. As a matter of fact, I had a psychological profile done on me when I was like uh, a couple of years clean and uh, by, a, by an employer. And the, uh, the only thing he wanted to share with me afterwards, he said, you know, I'm really looking forward to working with you, but the one thing that's coming through loud and clear is you don't play well with others. <laughs> so how, how did you make the decision to get clean or like, was, where's the, I know you went to that school that we talked about oh, yeah. on the last episode. That just episode. made it worse. So that, that just that, reinforced that, that I was a, okay. a different so, so and an is it you then I, made the decision? Like how do how do you go yeah, from? So yeah, it's great. And really is, you know, what happened? There's a lot about, we just talked about what it was like. So what happens is for me, and I think for a lot of people like me, if they make a, you know, a 180 in life, um, for me, what happened was you just get this accumulation of emotional debris where you, where for me, I was in so much pain all the time when I wasn't using, when I wasn't high, that was telling me that I must be crazy. I must be like, how can I possibly be treating myself this way? How can I be treating other people this way? How can I be lying to people? How can I be cheating? How can I be you know, running out of my girlfriend with a different girl. How can I be, you know, manipulating, you know, I was, a, I told you guys in the last session, I was a landlord, but what I didn't tell you in the last session was, is that I would steal from my tenants. Right. So you know, it's like, wow, it's like crazy. Right. Like, and I'll never forget. I, I rented this place and it had, um, it had no ceiling inside because it had rained and the ceiling had all been destroyed because the roof was leaking and they said, oh, one day we'll fix the ceiling. And they never did the whole time that I rented the apartment for several years. And so there's like falling down ceilings and like rotten floors and all kinds of weird stuff. And, and my bedroom was the only place that was relatively dry in the whole apartment. And, and, but even it had damage in the ceiling. And I remember looking up at the drywall that was still there in the one room and it had a huge crack and it looked like every day it was getting a little bit more saggy and like it was eventually going to fall right on my head when I was sleeping or something. But all I thought of was, is I'm broken like that drywall. Like I'm, I'm destroyed that all that water represents all the behavior I've done to myself and to others. And now it's, it's, it, there's only one solution for that drywall. There's only one solution for that drywall is to rip it out, throw it away, put it in the garbage. It cannot be recovered. 
And so where, and this was years before I started getting clean. So my thinking was very fatalist. Wow. And, and my, think, my fatalist thinking was, it doesn't matter. There's nothing I can do. There's no way I can get out of this. You know, the life that I've chosen for myself is now the life that I have. So the best thing I can do is try to, you know, struggle my way through that and get as much money to serve as many purposes as possible that, you know, are very self-serving. I always think about the new generation, right? Our kids, because they're all looking at their navels all the time, right? They're all spending all this time, you know, like I watch my, you know, one of my kids and they're like, you know, on the thing and an image, they send the image out of themselves. And then one comes back at the other person. Then they send an image of themselves to the next person. And all they're doing is looking at themselves all the time. And I spent a ton of time just obsessing about how fucked up I was and never really pursuing a solution. Just saying, you know, I'm, it's, it's the way it is. It's the way it's going to be. And during that period, what's really important to understand is that I made connections with a lot of people who felt a lot of the same ways. And so we're all self-supporting in this negative way, just like you guys are building this and have been for years building this very positive, supportive environment for your clients and for the Rockstar members and for people that you encounter in your business life. And it spills over into everything you do. At that time, you know, I was part of that gang that was the real subculture, that was the real criminal element, that was the real violent, you know, dishonest, untrustworthy element of the society. And yet I came from this place of, you know, hyper-educated, hyper-intelligent, hyper-successful people. Um, and so it was this real dichotomy, right? It was this real duality. And I, I look back on, on my time in there, and this is kind of taking us back just for a moment. And one thing that I always wondered is, so in when high school started, I didn't have to work very hard. And I was on the honor roll, I think the first three years, because it was five years back then, I think it was the first three years that I was on the honor roll. And I just kind of kept doing less and less because my, my, my marks might have been in the 90s and they were in the 80s. And I just realized, I'm like, I didn't do any homework. I just had to show up a class. If I could listen to the lesson, I would get good marks. It was pretty easy to me. So then I was like, well, I get good marks. So then I kind of stopped showing up to all the classes, still didn't do the homework. And it kind of, it started to fade. And um, I actually didn't even, when I walked across the stage in at, for high school graduation, I hadn't graduated. I was half a credit short. So I just, we went to a Catholic school and you had half, half period religion and half period spare at that time. And I had my first half of the semester was a spare. And I said, well, spare is better than religion. So I just never showed up. Didn't get the credit. Didn't graduate. So I had to find a, a summer school course and I found grade 10, a grade 10 equivalent course. It was weightlifting in the summer. That's how I started working out. I took a grade 10 weightlifting course to graduate high school and summer school. But, but uh, sorry. So the, the point of this is that looking back for me now, I was like, I've, I, I feel like there, there, a number of things kind of happened there. But I, I feel like one of the things, because you were a smart kid and you got everything, and I feel like if the, when you're put through an education system that is only one stream, for the people that can pick some of that stream up, and then I use some of my energy to figure out the system, I would rebel in different ways, and I was doing different stuff as well. And I was always just looking for angles and doing things this, you know, and I was always pushing the envelope. And people were like, why the fuck is this guy doing that type of stuff, right? And I think that's why it was just, it was like an almost an, like I was, I, that's how I felt I was smarter. Cause I'm like, oh, I got this class stuff. I'm now looking beyond that. I'm, and I'm doing that. And that for me, looking back, I feel like that was a part of it, not all of it for sure. But, and I, that's why I was going to ask you earlier, but then you got onto it, but you were like, 
it's a combination of the other stuff, but it's partly because some of the things were easy to you too from a, from just a knowledge standpoint. You were able to pick up stuff quickly so the mind starts going elsewhere when it doesn't have a natural other outlet, I feel. So, I what, pull, so what pulled you back? So Joe's story, compared to your story there, what pulled you in? Because Joe's very interesting. He had that circle of friends and it was a self-fulfilling kind of negative sphere of influence. What pulled you? So that was part, the friends were definitely part of it, which is, I remember growing up, kids were always like, my, my parents were always like, you are who your friends are, right? And you're like, yeah, yeah, you don't know. My friends are the best. And then looking back, you're like, oh yeah, there's some shitheads, maybe, you know, it kind of rubbed <laughs> off on me. And um, He just called all his childhood friends shitheads. He's still friends with a bunch. I know a bunch of them. They are. I started smiling because I'm like, I hope some of them are listening because it looks funny. But then... Um, <laughs> But, you know, I said I was a shithead sometimes, too. And Tom yeah, yeah. says to me, he's like, you know, you shouldn't say that. It's similar to what yeah, he said yeah. to you earlier. Right? But um, I don't I just think words are powerful. So when yeah, I hear that, it are. just bothers it's me. True. Yeah, yeah. But, but keep going with what you're saying. Yeah. So so what ended up happening was I it, I was headed. There was a couple instances. So one were one was we were going up north. I had actually a, an exam. I didn't even want the exam. Um, but anyways, my friends said, get in the back. We're just going out for a minute. And they just took me up north to their cottage. They wouldn't let me to the back of the car. And we ended up on the way there, flipping the car upside down. I was hanging by a seatbelt upside down, had to kick out the the windows and crawl out the car. We smelled gas as it was upside down in the ditch, right? And so we kicked out the window. We ended up walking three hours in the middle of the night to the cottage, right? Thinking we're going to get eaten by a bear. And then, uh, <laughs> so there was that. That's a wake-up call. Then I rode off my car on the QEW. And then I got, um, trying to break up a fight, Brand actually. new car. Brand new yeah. car you rode off on the QEW. Yeah. And then, so I got in an accident there and I rolled off the, I hit the guardrail three times. Somehow I did, I, I, during um, during rush hour, I did 360s across the QEW, hit the guardrail, bounce, hit it, bounce, hit it. So, and then I'm like, so I was extremely lucky, right? And then there With was- With a girl in the car. Yeah, that could have ended up very poorly. And then a friend of mine started a rumor about that at high school after what caused me to get with the girl <laughs> in the car. And I'm like, that was bad. He's like, he was laughing about it. Like, that's not a good thing. But anyways, the, uh, he- um, and then, yeah, I got my jaw broken. I was trying to break up a fight outside of a club where um, a friend of someone, a group of guys went to a friend of mine or something like, guys, we've all had a good night. Someone clocked me from the side. I was totally trying to break up a fight. I've been in fights before as a kid. I was stupid sometimes, right? But this one, I was like not trying to fight at all. Got sucker punched. My jaw got broken. And it was a combination of those three things happening in a period of a few months that caused me to step back. And I was sitting on the bus at that time because I had no more car. I was going from Mississauga to Sheridan College in Oakville. So I took three buses for an 8 o'clock class. I had to wake up at 5.30 at 19 or 20. You don't want to do that. And then, um, and that's, that's when I was sitting there on that bus. I had hours and hours to spare. And I remember I'm like, this, this isn't me. I, I would look at myself in the mirror. There was one specific time I remember I was at a friend's cottage during this time. And I was in the bathroom and I was washing my hands. And I looked in the mirror and I said, this isn't me. This is not you. This is bullshit. That you're you're bullshit. And I just I, the way I treat other people, like it doesn't work with my wife, but like I'm very hard on myself too, and it works for me. That's what motivates me. And I'm like, this is yeah, this is shit. So I said, during all that time on the bus, and, and during those three things, I just decided that this was not me. That I'm better than this, and then I just started living better than that. And every day from that point forward has been like I mean, there's struggles and there's challenges, but. It's been a it's been a climb up a mountain instead of a ride down a mountain. So I have I have that, language. Nick, for I don't this. think you've you've ever shared yeah, that's all that amazing. on the podcast. That's, that's no, really I haven't. Cool. I just, it's, that. There's Cole's notes. I'll, there's way more details that you would know. But I'll tell you I'll tell you something else. In a lot of ways, he just told my story, and that's amazing. It's 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 the only thing is is there's specific language that that I might apply to it as it relates to recovery. So we hit a bottom. So we we get to this place in life where. 
there's not, you know, what is their, the line is, what is there left to do? And the only options for us are jails, institutions, or death. So that's the line in the recovery program is that that's all there is left to do. So, you know, in my particular case, some of the incidents that led up to, you know, the change were I literally went up to a police officer in the street in Toronto in Regent Park and said, arrest me. Here's my drugs. Arrest me. I need something to change. Right. And he's like, go away. He's oh, like, fuck shit. off. Get out of here. So that, like, that was what, your, are you out of your he mind? He doesn't want to do the paperwork. He doesn't want to do the paperwork. Like, get the yeah. fuck out of here. You're not doing anything wrong. Just go do your drugs and leave me alone. Right. Like, but that was, but thing. that was your cry that was for your, help. No, well, that was one example of a cry for help. And so I think that the beauty of Nick's story is, is that there's those specific incidents that all kind of combine together to give a new message and, and, and kind of push you in a different direction. And I have a theory about, you know, who kind of recovers from the depths of recovery or from drug addiction and gets into recovery and stays is people that can own or recognize that somebody actually really does love them. They actually can accept other people's love. And for me, somewhere, you know, it's like uh, the, you know, the science, the physiological sciences, you get to 27, 28 years old as a male, and all of a sudden the final parts of your brain evolve and you realize it takes us a while. you're it takes not us taking a while. the risks, yeah, yeah. you know, that's why they send the 18 year olds off to war because they don't realize the danger and the risks. And I don't think that's totally true, but that's, you know, that's anyway. So for me, I'm 27, 28 and, you know, I'm starting to look back on on you know what this misery that i'm in because remember i mentioned the crack in the drywall is five years previous you know i was like 23 24 when that was going on so i had to go a lot further down so i was stealing i was fighting i was you know physical fights i was i was lying and cheating and stealing at work i was i was you know selling drugs i was you know you know gambling and doing all kinds of crazy stuff but it got a lot worse than that <laughs> <laughs> so for me, you know, uh, eventually the circle just narrowed, you know, it's like I, I call it a spiral, you know, like flushing down the toilet. And, you know, uh, uh, for some reason, I always think, you know, Australia's toilets go the other way, but they always end up at the bottom, right? Like we all end up, if you go down that path, you're going to end up at the bottom of the toilet. It doesn't matter which direction you go. So in other words, anybody, anybody, can, anybody can get into the toilet. And if you're in there and you don't get the fuck out pretty quickly, you could get pretty deep. And so for me... Uh, I got pretty deep in and I was just a mental case like the last uh, the last year year and a half of my active addiction I uh, I would go four three four days without any real rest I was uh, 75 80 pounds lighter than I am right now uh, and you know I've got 10 or so on me that I probably don't need but other than that's that a, you were that's thin. a lot of weight you were that's thin. a lot, that's of, a lot weight. of weight I was like deathly deathly ill like paperweight so, Ill. so what was what I'm trying to get to that yeah, point. I know what what yeah what, what but was, I want to really emphasize how bad it was how, okay. how hard I took myself before I could change right and 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 this is a common thing with 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 many people that I've encountered is that everybody has a bottom so Nick had a bottom and in recovery, we might call that a high bottom. He had, you know, a couple of pretty serious car accidents. He had a really serious incident where he got really seriously injured. And, you know, but I had, you know, I took beatings. I, I was part of giving out beatings. I had, you know, serious health issues. I had, uh, I had a doctor tell me that, uh, you know, if I hadn't gotten in here to get, you know, treated, I'd probably die within a few weeks based on the illness that I had at the time. Um, uh, which was very treatable if you just go to the bloody doctor, but I didn't want to go, right? 
And uh, it's just like one of those things, you know, if you don't go, it's, it could do damage. And so anyway, so what happens? So what happens is, is there's nowhere left to turn. So I had nobody to manipulate. I had nobody to steal from. I had nobody to lie to. I had nobody to cheat. I had nobody to take advantage of. I had nowhere else to turn. I had no money, no place to sleep. I had no place to hang my hat. And so what do you do in that situation? Well, if you're fortunate like me, you call a family member and you say, I need money because you're not still not thinking you want to change. And they're like, well, you know, we've been coached, thank God, because we're intelligent people. And we've been told the only thing we can't give you is money at this point. So what we can do is we can introduce you to somebody else who might be able to help you. And a weird convergence of events happened where they made a phone call to somebody in another part of the country and they made a phone call to somebody else in another part of the country. And the next thing you know, like an hour after I called my parents, the third call was somebody's knocking at my door. Uh, I was renting a hotel room and I had that day's rent for the hotel room and that was it. I didn't have enough money for food. And so the only thing I had, I, I had a little bit of drugs left and I didn't have any money and I kind of didn't know what to do. And, and so he looked at me and he said, well, you can drop everything right now and change everything right now and come with me or you can keep living this way and see how that goes. And how, I, how old were you at this point? I was uh, 27, okay. 27, I, 1993. Okay. So, okay, so then go on. I don't want you to get distracted from the story. So that's a long run. You know, those teenage years, you know, I got kicked out of some good universities. I had, uh, you know, I had lots of run-ins with the law. I had lots of, lots of stuff happen over those, you know, adult, quote-unquote adult years between, you know, 17, 18, and, and 27. Um, but I was ultimately pretty miserable and really didn't know what to do and so this gentleman said come with me and you know for me I didn't have anywhere else to go and I was looking at it like okay at least I'll get fed and I'll have a place to sleep tonight and um and he took me to the Halton Recovery House which is a which is an alcohol and drug rehabilitation center here in 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 Halton region it's at uh, the men's uh house is at uh, Trafalgar Road and Steele's just north of where the uh, outlet mall is, there's a little house on the north uh, east side. There's a there's a farm at the corner of Trafalgar and Steel. Oh my God, I know I know that property. Yeah, I've driven by Steel. Very at that next, house. very next property. It always yeah. has a couple of big vans yeah. out front, and it's yeah, like yeah. that's a weird house. Like, yeah, what is I always think is like maybe tow trucks that's, are there. That's sometime. the Halton Recovery House, and so you know the vehicles you're seeing there are a mix of employees and the vans that they do. They cart the you know the new alcoholics and drug addicts who are in there trying to get recovery. And the long timers, you know, people who have gone through it, who have now gone are going back to help or, you know, to speak to the group, to the guys or whatever. There's a women's uh, uh, place, the same called Hope Place Centers. They've actually called they actually call them both now Hope Place Centers, Hope Place for Men and Hope Place for Women. Um, Hope Place Centers is on 25 directly across from Chudley's just south of uh, Glencairn Golf Course on the same side of the street on the uh, on the east side of the street. And so so there's a women's there's a women's alcohol and drug rehab. There's a men's right here in our community and um, I was very fortunate that um, that they found a way to keep me there because it's not cheap and so uh, there's a mixture of supports that are still in place today all these years later I've been clean for over 26 years um, congrats Joe thank that's you. a big deal man but there's still thank you there's uh, it is a big deal and that's part of the reason why I'm here is to share that as I said at the beginning that you know no matter how hopeless it gets no matter how miserable you are there is the opportunity to recover if you want the help. 
And that's, that's why I, I felt that this forum would be useful to share that because somebody right now either knows somebody, cares about somebody, or just you know kind of casually is aware of somebody who's struggling with these things and whether that's super clear to the casual observer or not, they're, they're, you know, they're keeping a lot of secrets, they're making a lot of mistakes, and they're beating the hell out of themselves emotionally about those mistakes. And that's really the difference, right? So Nick was, and this is why I said he's kind of telling the story, is because Nick's beating on himself as a motivating and, and mitigating factor to move forward. The, my experience is when I start beating on myself, I get paralyzed, I get into a bad place. Uh, there's a line, you know, an addict alone is in bad company. Right. Because my headspace is, you know, like Tom's jumping on the negative thought and the negative statement. But for me, uh, you know, especially early on, especially in the in the in the days leading into going into treatment and the days immediately following it, the negative thoughts were pervasive and they were crushing and they were. And it was just all this evidence that I was a failure and that I was Could a loser have, and undeserving. So at 27, that happened. Could someone have stepped into your life? What would have taken at the age of 23? For somebody to get you to the, what is it? The Hope Place Center? Sorry, what's yeah, it called Hope now? Place Center. Hope Place Center. What would it have taken for someone at the age of 23 to get you there? Or do you have to hit the bottom? It's it. The word bottom has a has a connotation that might not be right for this. So, so what the bottom does is it provides willingness, right? So really what Nick was describing was a willingness to change. A recognition that there's a problem. And and a co and a coincidental or, or 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 matching willingness evolves out of that recognition that makes you motivated to do something about it. And and unfortunately for me, and I only can speak for myself, is that I had to bury myself in shit before I would would have a uh, have a recognition that I needed to become willing. And as a matter of fact. I didn't go to, I already said it. I didn't go to the whole place centers because I was willing to change. I went because I needed three squares and a place to sleep. What happened to me was, is I go in there and much like the place, you know, 10 years before, you know, I was like singled out because I wasn't really there. Everybody else had gotten clean before they got there, had to show like three weeks of willingness of being off the dope before they got there. And I've, show up and I'm like, you know, like an hour like ago I was using, right? Yeah, just, and, who's and, this guy? And, and somebody said, and you'll love this. I think I mentioned this in the last podcast, but somebody said, oh, you know, that Joe guy, he's the nicest guy in the world. He never talks. Like, like I haven't heard him say a word in like a week. And it's like, I was like so unhealthy and so messed up that all I did was basically sleep, eat, and, you know, it was like a, like a, a bit of a zombie, right? And, um, uh, bless his soul. That gentleman was a lot older than me, and he's passed on. But uh, he passed on sober uh, twenty years later. But uh, um, you know, it, it, I had to. I didn't know I was looking for willingness. All I knew was I couldn't continue what I was doing. That's the key. I knew I didn't want to keep doing what I was doing, and there was this opportunity. And so what happened to me was much like the treatment center before. Everybody singling me out, but more importantly, the counselors are recognizing that I wasn't willing. And so it was a 90 day program. I ended up spending six months there because <laughs> you know, the first go around. This is really the Halton Hope Place Center. This, this is the Halton. Because <laughs> I wasn't teaching Halton Recovery House yeah. Hope Place Center. Yeah, so you said that before it was yeah. six months. Yeah. So, you know, it wasn't three for me. It was six. And, you know, and, and my first job, I had already been in the car business at that point. I was I was selling cars through most of my 20s and um, and um, and stealing cars and, and, you know, a lot of other crazy stuff. But. 
when I when I started getting clean, it was like, oh, the car business is a part of the negative, you know, the negative vibe. You're hanging around the back of the showroom and drinking beers and doing drugs and this and that with the coworkers. So you that's can't... what happens. Oh yeah, in those days, especially. I'm joking, I'm joking. In those yeah, days, yeah. it was really great. Like you know, it's like a construction. Like, trust me, we, we yeah, grew up on construction sites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We grew up with drywallers drinking beer while they're putting up. Well, the yeah, yeah. There's still some crazy stuff yeah, going yeah. on construction the COVID, sites. Yeah, 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 yeah. COVID YouTube videos. Yeah, those ones made oh, it. They, oh those made all, all the national yeah, yeah. media even. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, re- yeah. that retirement party. Yeah. So I just remember just getting on those construction sites, just yelled at by everyone for anything. Oh yeah. Just constantly. But now you're not supposed to like yell at each other on construction sites. I'm like, that just seems not normal to yeah. me. I don't think you're supposed. Mm. I grew up like that was that taught us how, how to speak operated. back to people. When someone yells at you, you're like, well, I understand this language. I just yell <laughs> back at you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> even if it's like hello. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 So you know, it's it's. Uh, for me, my experience was that there was no outside influence that truly made me the way I was. And somewhere in that first year, I had this recognition that it was I was responsible for all of it. So it's, that's why I say, without telling anything exactly the same, what did Nick say? He basically said, I'm responsible. He spent time dwelling on it and considering what he had to change and how he had to change and what he was going to do. And he had these bus rides where he was thinking it over and making decisions. And, and ultimately, you know, what changed for me was a, was, a, was a decision that said that I am responsible. It's when I started to wake up and realize that my mother did the best she could for me. Right. I always thought my mother rejected me for her career. So personal you know, responsibility, taking personal responsibility for our Such actions a big thing. is key to, you know, my recovery today. And, you know, I think one of the reasons, again, that I'm here is because we as an as an addict, what I did for many years, what slowed me from getting into recovery was that I looked at what I was doing responsibly and pointed to those things to indicate that I must not really have that big of a problem. So a lot of people will say, you know, I've mentioned all these crazy things that I've done, but through almost all of it, I held down a job of one sort or another. There was a time, like it was a year, like, oh, I couldn't do the car business anymore. Let me go work in a factory. But I still worked every day. Like my parents never sent me money. I was like working every day and paying the rent and I had tenants and I had dope deals going on. You know, I was very entrepreneurial doing all these things to make sure I have money so I could live and eat. Um, uh, uh, so it wasn't like I, so I was pointing at these things and saying, these are reasons why I don't really have a problem. And I know so many people today and over the years that are pointing to the, you know, some of the things that they're doing that are good and positive in their lives and saying, this is the reason why I don't have to change these other things. And, 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 and unfortunately, you know, I think there's this, you know, there's so much talk about depression today. And, uh, and, you know, I've always been, you know, uh, a questioner of, in my own personal experience, whether I thought myself into my problems and then had to think myself out or if I had to live and act in a new way and live my way out of the problems. So we can't think our way out of a lot of our challenges. We have to take steps. And they're often usually, not often, and usually they're often involving working with others. They're often involving slowing down and getting some objective perspective on my role in the, in the circumstances and, and, and evaluating whether or not it was healthy or unhealthy and appropriate or inappropriate and what should I do to change. But when you're, when you're a messed up addict and the only thing you want to do, like I literally had a period of time where I was renting out my, this is right near the end, I'm renting out my couches to dope dealers who would sleep during the day and then go in the streets at night to sell their drugs. And they would pay me, 
when they left the house in the morning, they would pay me in drugs so that they would have a place to come back to that night. And I would stay there all day and do drugs and then host them all night. And imagine you got all these guys sleeping on all the couches and I'm like, I know he's got the drugs in his, I know he's got the drugs in his shirt pocket. Let me just see if I can steal a little bit out of his shirt. But there's like 10 guys, like they're going to kill me if they wake up. And yet that's how dangerous and risk taking. So, you know, so, so I'm rationalizing that that's all okay because I'm still paying the rent. I'm telling myself it's going to be okay because I'm still paying the rent. I'm still, you know, I've still got a nice stereo. I didn't hawk my stereo, right? And I still had a car and, and all these different things. And, and none of that was true. What was really true was that I was in so much pain and fear and frustration and loneliness that eventually um, I was crushed. And that was my bottom. It wasn't an incident. There were incidents. But that wasn't the bottom. The bottom for me was recognizing that I was in this really hollow, empty, lonely place that needed to change. And then, excuse me, for whatever reason, I was given the opportunity to change because that's so key. Like I couldn't, I was so bad, I wasn't even looking for it. Who was Um, the guy that knocked at the door? That's an addict who's clean, who knows, okay, this is is my That's exactly who it was. Because it would be that type of person to know. That's it. If, if you're going to come or not going to come and what to say. And, and thank God he was the director of that treatment center at the time because he broke every rule in the book. The, the, the administrator of the treatment center over the months to follow took a shining to me and she was like a mother figure and really nice. And, and she wasn't really chit-chatting with a lot of the other guys, but she was always talking to me. And eventually she spilled it that, you know, they had a big war in the first week when she discovered that I hadn't come through any primary program introductory program that would prove that why, i was sober why did he do that for you no idea it's just what he had to is do is he still around i haven't stayed in touch with him because he had a certain kind of aloofness and disconnectedness but i owe him a lot i owe him you know his decision to bring me in there was was life altering that was like, that was almost a a, a a mentor type move to be he just to dropped be fair, in he did it for Many, 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 many people. And one of the keys is I'm, I'm acquainted with hundreds of people who are doing it for thousands more. We're not talking like people who do it for like one or two. I know guys that, you know, are, are sponsoring uh, new addicts and longtime recovering addicts who still need that connection. I still need that connection. What does connection. it mean to be a sponsor of someone? It's a guide through our program of recovery. Uh, somebody who you know has things in life and a way of living that that you look up to that is a guide for you that is a can be a coach for you and not a friend he's not a not necessarily anything other than just a guide through our program of recovery and um, you know what what happened to me was that this place opened up a, a whole host of potential sponsors for me one of them was like a real, you know, bad, you know, he was like a gang member in his former life, you know, involved in murders, involved in a lot of violence, involved in a lot of heavy, heavy criminality and drug use. And somehow I got connected with him through the treatment center and he became my first sponsor. And there's a moment in early recovery when you kind of, in my recovery, when I had to do certain steps in order to admit my wrongs and admit the mistakes I had been making up to that point. And they were both kind of theoretical and actual, you know, things like I had committed a crime versus um, I'm always telling myself that I'm not good enough. So admitting all of that stuff to another human being is a part of what I had to go through in my, in my process. And, you know, the, the buildup to that is quite significant. You don't just step in and do that. You, you, for me, it took a lot of 
uh, becoming willing, recognizing that there was a support system for me that could that that you know that this could work out. And eventually, when I took that step, I took it with this gentleman and um, uh, Billy is his name. And uh, and and the most remarkable thing happened. He's like, yeah, I did that. Yeah, I felt that way. Yeah, I did the same kind of thing. Yeah, you know what? And in the end of it all, he said, you know, okay. So now we move on. Who cares? And it wasn't so much who cares. It's just now, you know, it's yeah, going to be okay. Next? What's next? What's next? Yeah. And, and, and that, you know, that's like pretty big deal to a new uh, person who's trying to get clean. And it doesn't happen in the first hour or two or Because he was accepting you? Because or he because accepted he me. Gave because, he was, because he was willing to just not judge me and not hold it against me and, 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 not, and not. He never changed the way he treated me. Before and after, he was always the same towards me. And, um, and many, 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 many people have had the same kind of experience that I had. And I can't speak for them, but I can tell you that, that in order to get to that point, there has to be this, this turnabout where we make that decision to commit to a different way of life. And the problem for me is that I always thought I knew how to do things. And I run into it all the time today. I think I know what I'm doing. I think I know what the right decisions are. I think I know what the right plan is. And, you know, probably three quarters We're of the time. many of us I'm, like that, Joe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. many yeah. of us yeah, are out there that, like you know, that. <laughs> Except that you're, you know, you're collective, you've got a, you know, I think you're benefiting from a sounding board who has a slightly different personality than you. And I think when he, he doesn't listen little, anyway, so it doesn't <laughs> matter. <laughs> I listen to Nick. I listen to Nick. He doesn't think I listen. I listen to him. But I know, walk away going, shit, he's probably fucking right. God damn it. But, you know, for, for, for an addict to become willing um, usually takes an awful lot of hours of exposing themselves to other people who have already become willing and have already made these changes. And so you have this evidence-based objective perspective that says that these people are happy. Like they've changed. They, they tell these stories. Like about you who need they, to see that it's possible. You have to see that it's possible. You have to start to come to believe. So there's actually a line that says, I came to believe, you know, first it, the line you don't is, think when you're using or when you were using, you didn't realize that it was possible to come out the other side and actually be happy? Yeah, exactly. I have numerous examples where I was proud of the fact that I could go to any place in the world and find the one other addict in the room. I was at a prestigious university. There's 500 kids in a hall. And I'm looking around. And another guy's looking around. We make eye contact across this hall. Okay, day one, first day of university. We make eye contact across the hall. We walk up to each other. It's like, hey, you smoke? Yeah, 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 let's go. That was it. I found my co-addict in the so first day of university. You always look for people that are using when you're using? Because yeah, like you, you're, you're, you're surrounded by negativism and surrounded by challenges and pain and difficulty. What and goes so you through tend your to magnetize okay, so, to those so, so what, like positive electrons so when you're outside, and negative electrons. When you're, it's, it's, when you're outside know. doing whatever you're doing with the negative circle of influence, what happens when a positive person walks across that circle and goes, hey guys, why don't you fucking stop doing what you're doing? You, you just you just look at that person and go, that guy's an idiot. They, they fall. Like, what goes a, through your head? Yeah, they fall into a couple categories. Yeah, yeah. They either get robbed. Yeah. Okay. okay. That's okay. quite high on the list. Okay. They get robbed, or they get manipulated into you know losing sure. losing out. Okay. Or you know they're in a real position of authority. Like like I once had a poker game and the music was loud and the cop walks in and there's drugs all over the table and. The cop's like, hey, guys, you know, you should turn your music down and turns around and walks out. We're like, 
you know, so a lot of times it just, you it was, it was, you just couldn't hear it. You just, I couldn't hear a real positive message. And to be fair, like, again, context is king. Everybody has a story of change in their lives. And, and my story of change ties in something that I think is so important is that for whatever reason, I keep saying I was unteachable. I was unwilling to learn. I was unwilling. I was still absorbing information. I was still pursuing knowledge. I just started pursuing it in my own way. And it was my own, you know, twisted version of trying to learn and trying to grow. And, and, but the fact is, is that some of that stuff had to have been rubbing off on me in some ways. Like my first exposure to, to a recovery program was when I was 15. And then I was re-exposed when I was 17. And then I was re-exposed when I was 19. And then I was re-exposed when I was in my early 20s. And so there was all these buildups of pieces of information that were suggesting to me there was another way to live. And I was defying it. And so that's really, you know, I'll get in these really defiant modes. I don't know if anybody can relate to that, but I would get really defiant and resistant for no apparent logical reason. I still do it to this day. It's like everybody's <laughs> agreeing with something. Like, oh, fuck that. I disagree. I'm oh, I think Nick and I do that too. Right? Uh, that's, you get defiant. Uh, to me, well, you, almost you talk about it all the time. You're like, if everyone's doing one thing, we automatically the start looking around and be like, this seems wrong. We should be doing yeah, the like, opposite. Yeah. If everybody yeah. runs one way, we immediately <laughs> think that's not the way we're going. Yeah, so... <laughs> You know, the problem is, is that the vast majority of society is not a drug addict. And the vast majority of society are not criminals doing criminal behavior. And so I was defying the majority. I was defying the commonality. And I had uber information about it because my parents were multi-degreed educated people that had lots of good information and were constantly trying to share it with me and constantly trying to connect with me. My siblings are all really educated you know, the whole thing was, it was available to me. It's just, I resisted it. And I, you know, and as I say, I still resisted in some ways, but ultimately I started to the, accept but the resistance to came from the resistance came from you thought, even though they were trying to connect with you, it didn't a come from a place feeling, of love, a deep feeling of feeling undeserving, a deep belief that I didn't deserve to be loved, that I didn't deserve to be, to be given opportunity, that I didn't deserve to be happy, that I wasn't going to succeed by following the path that the normies Jeez, follow that's that yeah. that example you used when you were in your bed looking up at the ceiling and the drywall was going to break and you thought you were going to break or whatever. yeah I mean, to, to be in that mental state joe like hearing you talk like that that's doesn't feel good listening today hearing you yeah. say that to, for me to imagine where you were when you were thinking that that that's 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 tough man so I wanted to, I appreciate that. And I mean, it was tough. And I know that a lot of people uh, in my life today who are, you know, pursuing their own paths of health and recovery and, and overcoming things is some, some important things for me to share is, you know, I, I have um, relationships today that range from you name the profession and they're a recovering addict. So there's not a single profession unaffected by this. There's not a single walk of life, the, the wealthy, the poor, and, and the black and the white, and all the different, you know, genders and sexual orientations and races and religions. It's, it's just, it's pervasive. It's everywhere. It's common. But on the other side of the coin... I think it's becoming more common, probably. Yeah, well, I think what's happening is it's becoming more acceptable to okay. admit it. I so think they're that, speaking about it so we know more about that's more right. cases. I think so. I think, that, I think that, so to give you an idea, when the program that I follow first started meeting, it was illegal for addicts to congregate. Yeah, okay. okay? So, so if three of them yeah. got together, 
they'd have to be like skulking around in the woods to. Who made it illegal? I don't understand. Uh, the the federal, provincial, and state but governments. What, you're classified like an addict, like you're wearing yeah. a scarf that yeah. says you're an addict. Like, how, well, who decides that three you know, people can't so get there's, together? There's an old line in our in our in my recovery program that says we are under no surveillance at any time, and it gets read out at every single meeting to remind people, don't worry, there's not. You know, because it's scary. Like you come in, like I've I've made friends with people who who you know have 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 done all kinds of things. Some caught, some unjudged, according to the rules of the world, and and so they're scared, and they're and they're and they don't know what they're facing when they go in, and they don't know what they're going to encounter. And and I know I certainly didn't. I know that what happened to me is that because I went for ninety days, or, or sorry, for six months at this treatment center, and they and they exposed me again and again and again and again to it over the six months, that eventually I realized, wow, this could be an opportunity for me to change my whole life. I believe this thing could work for me, and and that's what happens to a lot of people when they come. Uh, but they have to be, you know, they have to they have to get to that point. They have to get into the situation to see other people who are succeeding and and the other piece I wanted to share was what I've noticed over the years for me is that people I I have a thing that's ringing in my ears I spoke at somebody's funeral and I was working with him for a while and um and he he had some real you know I the trauma I described to you is basically nothing it's all self-created inside my head Right. I t- I'm smart enough that I told myself enough crazy stuff that I became a mental case. Like I literally talked myself into being a whack job. And so you were so, very right, persuasive right, to yourself. Yeah, I did. I talk, But I've over the years, I've encountered people who have had legitimate, like many people who have had legitimate what we would call heinous or horrendous uh, traumas. Uh, ranging from violence to abuse to you name it, right? And and I've encountered many, many of these people, and and you know this one friend that that I was you know working with, you know he 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 was beautiful, he was fit, he was a model, he was popular, he was so well liked, he always had the prettiest girl, he had a group of longtime trusted friends. Um, you know, he had, he had so many good things. He had parents who loved him, but he had just enough traumas and pains that he couldn't find a way to get past it. And, and you can't talk somebody into a new way of living. You can't ever convince anybody to change. So you ask the question, you know, would somebody come up and say, you know, certain special words that, you know, the secret sauce or the magic wand that would cause me to have gotten clean sooner or changed my past sooner? And I think the answer is absolutely not. I had to come to a, a place of my own that, that motivated me to change. And I've, I've, as I say, I've met a lot of people and, and a lot of people are in their graves today who couldn't find a way to make that change. And the kicker is it wasn't this deep my situation was I didn't eat for days, I didn't sleep for days, I consumed drugs basically as my only food, I did all kinds of violent and unhealthy things. This guy wasn't doing any of that. He actually fell off a roof and smacked himself, you know, he was fit and strong, built like Nick, and fell off a roof and picked him a second floor roof and picked himself up and said, I'm okay. And they're all looking at him like, you can't possibly be okay, like you just fell off a roof. And so they put him in the in the truck and they said, just sit for a minute. And he had actually torn a little muscle in his heart and, and, he, and he bled out sitting there. But 
The real reason is why he lost his footing on the roof was because he had been a little irresponsible with his drug of choice the night before. And he had been up too late. And, you know, who knows the real, you know, what was God's plan for that? But the truth is, it wasn't like, you know, he was, he, you know, he wasn't 70 pounds underweight. He was actually proud of the fact that he could consume just enough drugs so he could go and be a body and like show off his body because he'd be like perfectly ripped with not an ounce of fat on him, right? But he would be perfectly ripped, right? He's just, you know, one, and it's so kind. And, and the reason I share that is because it's just the kindest, nicest guy. It's not any uh, uh, level of bottom. I got my hand up in the air and now it's going lower and lower like an elevator. There's no high point or low point that dictates, oh, I've heard, you know, this guy's story and, you know, he was a criminal and he was a drug addict and he stole from people. He did all these things. So I'm not like that. So I don't have a problem with drugs or I don't have a problem with alcohol. I know people, we talk about the kind of the, and hopefully nobody gets upset with this, but we, we talk about the housewife syndrome where somebody who has spent a lot of years giving everything they have to their kids and to their spouse and then they start to realize in their 40s and 50s they don't have a whole lot of purpose and the next thing you know, people around them start noticing they're drinking more and more. Well, the treatment center, the women's treatment center would bring people to the meeting that I go to quite regularly to expose these new women to recovery. And there's this remarkable trend that I've noticed over 20 plus years where a certain percentage of those women are that woman. They have money, nothing's destroyed. Alcohol is not ever gonna break their bank. They haven't committed any crimes. They haven't, you know, they've got families that care about them. They've got people. And yet, it's it's ruined them in their own way. They've lost their purpose. To they've, them, they've lost their purpose. They've hit a bottom. Yeah. They've hit their own kind of a bottom. And their bottom is just as legitimate as mine. And because I care a lot about how other people um, live today, I think their bottom's more important than mine because... I got through mine and I hope that goodness gracious they get through theirs and come out the other side willing to change and willing to grow. And that's why I'm, that's this whole purpose of sharing this was to try and, you know, just put that little tiny recording out there that maybe somebody somewhere hears it one day and says, wow, you know, uh, you know, there's somebody who could use some help and maybe they'd be willing to hear from this guy or maybe, you know, they, now that I've heard this, I can share something interesting with them that might help them in some way that push them. So we can never change them, but we can give them nudges. And that's what my family did when they realized they couldn't give me money, but they could call somebody who might be able to just listen and talk to me. They knew enough to just say, you know, call, call a friend. And that's what they did. And, and that started a journey for me. Whereas if they had given me money at that time, it probably would have been, you know, who knows? It would have been a totally different path, right? Lights out. It's interesting when you kind of honed in on that point about personal responsibility. Oh, that's because I, I guess in life, I've always thought about that. You know, we've all seen people and I, you see people who are always blaming other people, but I've always kind of just, I've not appreciated the layers to that because I've always just thought it's like, um, you know, it would come to they're not successful in their real estate investing because they're always blaming the bank yeah. or a tenant or, and have, or they're not as successful in sales because the comp plan wasn't good or the territory. So I've, I've never realized the depth to that. I've always just looked at it that and it's been really obvious to me that, wow, like you're not taking personal responsibility, take personal responsibility and your life will change. Live by principles. And, and you've probably heard us share these before. I've told this to people before when they're doing that. I'm like, listen, just do the right thing. Treat others as you treat yourself and give 110%. And, and that's it. You live by those principles. They'll compound. It'll take some time. You need to build up momentum. 
but I've never appreciated the depth of that. I've been a little naive in thinking like, oh, it's just like you're not good in sales because of that or your real estate investing struggles are because you're blaming. I've never really appreciated the depth to where this goes. So I thank you for, for kind of enlightening me here. I just want to share, you're welcome. And I want to share one final thing is that the reason that I felt that I could do this with you guys and come and do this, you know, sharing and trying to expose it a little bit for me in my world is because there's something about your collective message over the last, what is it, 12 years, 13 years? There's something about your collective message that speaks about recovering from a, for me, it's a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body where I had no belief I would ever have a life. Now, that's not specifically what you guys are trying to give people, but you're trying to guide and help and, and, and mentor in a way that is full of positive, supportive, nurturing messages um, uh, framed in humor and humility. And it's the humility that that gentleman had when he came knocking on my hotel room door. He wasn't there to help himself. As a matter of fact, he could be anywhere else on earth and he'd probably have a better experience than what he had to put up with that night, right? It was strictly humility that 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 and he, you know, he made somewhat light of it and he made it a, a gentle kind of progression forward. And you guys are doing that so naturally. It's amazing to witness. It's been a gift, you, you know, being a it's the strangest thing. You know, you, you know, it's not like I I'm not asking you for my 13 years of membership money back, but if you want to give it to me, <laughs> you can give it to me as a gift. But uh, but. You know, the, the reality is, is that is that, you know, you, you guys have managed to do this kind of sharing where it actually benefits you financially. It benefits people around you financially. It benefits everybody involved financially. But I don't think that's what's keeping this going at all. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure it has nothing to do with that. I think that what keeps this going is that, that what you just said, you know, do the next right thing. Um, you know, give it give it your all all the time and and treat and others open, treat others as, as you would want yourself to be treated and and openly share you know what's available to be shared and and you've never kept secrets about you know how you've been successful you've never kept secrets about what you've learned and what you haven't learned and about cleaning shit off the ground about cleaning shit yeah that's how, the, that's how this starts <laughs> yeah, yeah. not off the ground inside his house like yeah. how long was he living with that for <laughs> it's oh, like man. it's like it's like tom's uh, poopy house yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Let's go over to yeah. the poopy house. Okay. Thanks for sharing that, Joe. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, that I, yeah. we appreciate Anyways, that, especially coming from someone like you. But it, no, it, it's just, I guess it's, we just never even looked at it like that. We're just trying to, yeah. One thing we're good at is just kind of moving forward. And I think we're just, we've learned so much from other people over the years, many other people that if we can share stuff, the logic is if we can share stuff that, no different than why you're here. If you can share something that helps someone yeah. else, then you know, we all benefit from it because then there's better people all around and it just yeah. kind of helps everyone. So it's kind of, yeah, in some weird way, it's, it's a line. It yeah. aligns with what, yeah. you know. And, what and, I, and this is going to sound weird, but I feel like a lot of the world's problems come down to, now you've taken it much deeper, so you've helped me appreciate this, but come down to the way our money system works. And I know what you've discussed is way deeper than that, but I take that personally. So that's what I feel like we are here because I'm like, we, the reason you can't save enough and you're anxious about your retirement, money, kids, this, your rent, mortgage, ta tax payment is because the cards are stacked in a way that really is against us a little bit and no one's talking about it and it bothers me to my core. See, like it I literally bothers me 
to my core. And I think and everyone should go to the gym. <laughs> <laughs> so there, well, but so, I, but you've, you've really kind of opened my eyes to like, okay, like I was bothered by this thing, but life has different, you know, layers to the onion and, 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 uh, so, you know, the, the beacon of hope and the beacon of, of information, the beacon of change, you guys put yourselves out there in different ways to be those people for the things that are important to you. And, you know, when I was a, a, a early trying to get clean addict and recovering addict, I was gravitating towards people who are beacons of hope, beacons of change and beacons of growth in, in the world of recovering from addiction, where these people had a year where they hadn't used drugs. And I was like, I could never stop using drugs for even half a day, let alone a year. <laughs> right. And, and there's an old line, you know, one day at a time. Right. And, 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 you know, it applies to so many things in life, but in, in recovery, that beacon of hope, you know, those people shine their light a little bit on me. I soaked up what they had to teach and it helped me along my journey to the point where, you know, where I am, you know, many, many years clean today and have some good friendships and have a, a very good life and a very successful life. And I watch you guys and you're really a beacon of hope in your environment and doing the same things for your people. And I never got to throw the dig in about, uh, about how, you know, there's always this dig that, that nicks the bossy one and, and the controlling one oh, yeah, and the no. angry one. But if you listen to the uh, Andrew Palhatis podcast, uh, Tom's like, don't touch that. Oh yeah! In yeah. the middle of the park, he's he's probably fiddling with the to cable. Paul. It was to Paul. It was to yeah. Paul. Yeah, yeah. It's to Paul. He's like, touch Paul. these cables. Like, Paul, don't touch that! Don't touch that! It's like, Talk, okay, they're both bossy that, and they're both controlling, yeah. oh, that, but they're good true. beacons of hope. That too. was true up to forty. There was this shift in Tom, and some people in the office saw it at forty. He's like, all right, I'm, hey, listen, I'm running out of time, I, man. Hey, listen, this is you it. are who you hang around with, Nick. <laughs> That's okay. He That's got, who you spend the most get, time He's with. getting my best traits. Okay? No, I'm, I've never hid the fact that I'm an asshole. It's just over the years, people have thought I'm not an asshole. And I try to tell them, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of an asshole. You're you know, not really an asshole. I've, you've just, you just uh, set in your ways. <laughs> to, you're just, is the once, once everyone around you accepts that you're always right, then everything becomes I okay. I told Dr. Dr. Jeff that before. Yeah, yeah, we did. I actually this. told Dr. Jeff. I thought you'd be proud of me. I came out and said it. I said, listen, this is what I think. I think I'm always right. That's what I think. You don't think you're always right. You know you're always yeah, right. Yeah, I guess that's a better way to put yeah. it. You're right. <laughs> Joe, uh, thanks, man. I don't know. This has been really cool that you're doing this. And I just hope, like, I, I would, I'm trying to put myself in someone's shoes that if they were in your shoes and maybe, maybe someone hears this or they're dealing with a family member or a friend or a peer yeah. and they just know that next step. Because for me, I wouldn't have known. This is embarrassing, okay? I wouldn't have known to reach out to a center like the Halton, repeat it again, the Halton Hope. Hope Place Centers. Hope Place Centers. Hope Place I Centers. wouldn't have known to reach out to a place like that and say, hey, I know someone, I think they could use your knock at the door. I honestly, I wouldn't have known that. So yeah. just that for me, knowing that is a, is a big deal. So yeah. thank you for, for sharing your whole story. And um, Joe, you said you went there at 27 years old? And you're 26 years sober, you 20, said? 20, so I guess I, it was, ni I'm clean since 1993. So I'm coming up on 28 years later this year. So, yeah, so you, you're you're sober for more than... Than I was you, using. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty spectacular. It is pretty spectacular, yeah. man. Yeah, and, you know, and a lot's gone good. I've got, all, I've got an 18-year-old and a 20-year-old that have never seen me use. I've got... Um, you know, some friends that I've had for 20 plus years and I drive them bananas at times. They're like tearing their hair out, trying to deal with this insane, you know, loquacious Joe. Ah, yeah, don't know what that word means. Very articulate. There you go. No, I'm sure it's very descriptive and proper. It's very proper for this and, situation. And, I'm anyways, sure. Anyways, uh, uh, just means talkative. And... <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, there's so many gifts that come that all came from, you know, just taking personal responsibility, making a commitment to change, and then availing myself of people around me who are willing to help me. And really, that's what Rockstar is too, right? It's just, you know, you want to change something about your life, you avail yourself of, of, of what Rockstar has to offer. The vast majority of what you guys are giving, you're giving for free. And, uh, and, and it's changing people's lives, you know, like, just like we're talking about Dr. Jeff, like, you know, he wasn't paying you as a membership and yet you're influencing his, his life. And I think it's such a great gift. And so the, the more people are doing that, uh, the more people can get a little healthier. And I think that's the whole conversation about depression and, and addiction and, and fear. And I didn't talk about it at all, but fear, right? That fear of failure, that fear of loss, that fear of economic loss, let it be a motivating force instead of a instead of a crushing force that you can't overcome. There's a way to get through this. There's a way to live this life that you can you can you know look back on and be happy for and be grateful that you lived your life like that. And so that's you know so I'm grateful to be even remotely associated with you guys and I'm and I'm glad that I encountered you when I did because you really had a big influence on on this version of of Joe. Thanks, Joe. Cool. Two-way Thank street, two-way yeah. street for sure. If someone's listening to this, can they reach out to you? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, is it, do you want to share book. an email or yeah. what do you want? Yeah. yeah. So I got my, I'll give my business email up because maybe you want to buy a car too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you're looking for a car, <laughs> Joe, next car guy. for an next car you, thing. Yeah, we yeah, have yeah, not done car a good thing. job of promoting your business, but <laughs> really uh, that is serious. Our mom. Well, listen. Right yeah, before yeah. we started recording, our mom, who is not very free with her spending, ran over and said. The car's the best car I ever bought. And then I said, well, what about Joe? And he's like, oh, yeah, and Joe's great, too. So if that's not a testimonial that our 74-year-old Scottish mother didn't come running over to thank Joe, I don't know what is. But, yeah, so what would be the email? So it's joe.gluby, which is G-L-U-B-E, at carcostcanada.com. So I'll repeat it, joe.gluby, G-L-U-B-E, at carcostcanada.com. Yeah. Happy to help any way I can. That's why I'm here. Joe, thank you. Awesome. Appreciate thanks, that, man. Thank really, you thank you for this. Thank, thank you. you. Hey, everyone. So thanks again to, for Joe, to, to or to Joe, I should say. Um, thanks again to Joe Glooby, Joseph Glooby, for sharing his story. I think this is what we really like about this podcast and Rockstar and what we've started is it feels to me that it's a bunch of us all trying to figure things out together in different ways. Joe and his journey, my journey, Nick's journey, all of our journeys and we're sharing and hopefully sharing our flaws and what we're good at and not so good at and what we're learning in the hopes that someone out there listening can shortcut their own success, whatever that means to them by listening to some other people share their life story. So I'm really grateful that Joe was able to share that. And uh, Listen, if, if you want to check out what Rockstar is all about and what we're up to, you can visit our website. You can go to rockstarinnercircle.com to check all that fantastically wonderful stuff out. That's it for this episode. Thanks again, Joe. Until next time, your life, your terms.